Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Cardio nerds, it's Amit Koyal. Thanks for tuning into this installment of our prevention series, produced in collaboration with the American Society for Preventive Cardiology. In this episode, Dan, Kareen, and I take a stroll through the CardioNerds Women's Clinic to learn about women's cardiovascular prevention from Dr. Leslie Cho. Dr. Cho is an interventional cardiologist, director of the Women's Cardiovascular Center, and the section head of preventive cardiology and rehabilitation here at the Cleveland Clinic. She has also been an incredible personal mentor and advocate. Actually, my first real foray into cardiovascular prevention was a review on risk stratification, which I wrote with her and truly was a big motivation and inspiration for creating this entire series in the first place. For all of you lovers of cardiology and cardiovascular education, I also want to tell you about an exciting new podcast series called Talking Tal Rounds, in which myself and Dr. Eric Roselli, Director of Adult Cardiac Surgery at the Cleveland Clinic, review the main teaching points from the Tal Rounds conferences. In my opinion, the Tal Rounds conference, designed really by Dr. Roselli, is one of the best high-yield and engaging conferences that I've ever enjoyed. Each Tal Rounds places the patient at the center, and so each discussion starts off with an illustrative patient case and is followed by a series of fast-paced, highly engaging, and extremely high-yield lectures by content experts. Topics vary and cover the breadth of cardiovascular and thoracic education, and I mention it now because one of the recent Tal Rounds was actually coordinated by Dr. Leslie Cho about diets and heart health and will be in an upcoming episode. The Talking Tal Round series is a component of the Cardiac Consult podcast. We will include the links to the Cardiac Consult podcast and the Tal Rounds website on this episode's description. Using the latter link, you can actually log on and watch the entire video lecture and earn CME credit. As always, just remember, we are an independent educational platform brought to you by cardioners who just love cardiology and teaching. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. So sit back, relax, and let's learn directly from expert cardio nerds. Today, I have the great honor of introducing Dr. Leslie Cho. Dr. Cho here at the Cleveland Clinic wears many hats. She is a professor of medicine at the Cleveland Clinic Learner School of Medicine, Case Western Reserve Medical School. She's an interventional cardiologist director of the Women's Cardiovascular Center, section head of preventive cardiology and rehabilitation. Beyond that, Dr. Cho is also a great teacher, a mentor, a very active clinician, and just an absolute leader in the field. But at home and outside of work, she's also a world traveler, a connoisseur of music, and I recently learned that she's also been an actress. Sad, isn't it? that I would pick physician as my um, job and not an actress. You know, I would have been a good, I think, character actress. <laughs> you, could, you could still apply both, I'm sure. Like no. when you talk to, yeah, I don't know. No, like those, those patients, days have passed. That's why, that's why this is a podcast and not a video chat. Oh, oh come on. I've seen you on the, on the videos, Dr. Cho. Wait, what was the movie you were in? The story behind I that. was skeleton number four in a horror movie called The Fountain of Misery. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> 
I wish I could say I was a huge Fountain of Misery fan, but I, I will say that now. I, I am now. I'm going to go dig up the archives of No, those. you know, the beauty of that is that it was produced before you were born, Daniel. And so it's on VHS. It is not on the internet. Oh, it no. is not on anything. It's on VHS. <laughs> well, I think we're definitely going to have to dig that one up. And Dr. Cho, it's so great to welcome you to the show. But before we do, I, I remember you telling me that you'd previously traveled to Berlin just to listen to music. Can you tell us about that? Oh, I'm a great fan of classical music. And I've always wanted to hear the Berlin Philharmonic under Simon Rattle, their conductor. Unfortunately, I never made it during his tenure. So I went recently and heard the Berlin Philharmonic, which is an amazing, amazing group. The venue was spectacular. But it's it's one of my great passions to listen to different orchestras in their home setting. That's very cool. I would love to kick things off because I am so excited to discuss our topic today, women's cardiovascular prevention. Dr. Cho, it's really such an honor for us to have you on the show. We've learned a great deal from your Jack state-of-the-art review titled Summary of Updated Recommendations for Primary Prevention of Cardiovascular Disease in Women, and we will review much of that paper in today's discussion. But before we dive in, I'd like to play a little game just to get all of our juices flowing. So I'll read two statements and you tell us if it's a myth or a fact and why. The first, heart disease is a man's problem. Well, obviously that's a myth because heart disease is the (laughs) number one killer for women. It is one of the things that unfortunately has been out there for so long and has really gotten in the way of progress for women in heart disease. Absolutely. And Amit got in trouble with this during our Martha Gulati episode. Let's Um, not relive that, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Good for Martha. He's he's learned his lesson. (laughs) Okay, question number two the approach to cardiovascular disease in men is the same for women. And that's really what we're going to address today. And it really is not the case. Women are 10 years older when they present, they have more comorbidities, they have really unique risk factors. So it's not the same. We treat it like the same and we treat risk factor reduction is the same, but it really isn't the same. Wow. Thank you, Dr. Cho. That was very helpful. Now that we have that covered, we'd love to staff some patients with you on our Cardio Nerds Women's Clinic. Excited to bring some patients to you to get some great advice. So we'll start with Bellona Gravidara is a 45-year-old G2P1 African-American woman with a history of lupus, second trimester miscarriage, preeclampsia, and dyslipidemia, who's here for a routine pap smear. A close friend recently had an MI, and she wants to know if there's anything she could do to get healthier. Her predicted 10-year ASCVD risk score by pooled cord equation is 1.3%. Dr. Cho, besides for reiterating the life simple seven, as we do for everyone in our clinic, how do you interpret her ASCVD risk? Her 10-year risk by pooled cord equation almost gives her like a clean bill of health. I know. It's really a shame. 
It's really a shame. Let me start by saying that the new 2018 cholesterol guidelines make a headway into addressing the unique risk factor for women, but it doesn't really even get at the correct assessment of this particular patient and a huge group of women. So for example, the adverse pregnancy outcome, what we define as hypertensive disorders during pregnancy, like preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, preterm delivery, or preterm loss, intrauterine growth restrictions, they happen in about 10 to 20% of pregnancy, and it's associated with 1.8 to four-fold increase in cardiovascular disease risk. So the fact that she's had second trimester miscarriages, preeclampsia puts her at an increased risk. And you all know that autoimmune disease, which is, you know, we all think autoimmune disease is gender neutral, but it's actually not. 80% of people with autoimmune disease are women. And people with autoimmune disease have three to five-fold increased risk for major adverse cardiac events. So her risk is really not 1.3. It's much, much higher. The question is, is how do we address someone like this who really is outside of the ASCVD risk calculator. When you look at someone like this, that clearly has risk, that you go beyond that ASCVD risk calculator and you really assess her unique risk factors and aggressively risk modify her because her future life and quality of life really depend on risk factor modification that you start today. We'll continue on with the case. Poor Miss Gravadera was devastated by the loss of her friend. She feels depressed with loss of interest in her hobbies. She has trouble sleeping, difficulty concentrating. She denies suicidal ideation. Thankfully, she has a strong support system at home and is actively involved in her local church. This seems more protracted than typical bereavement. After some counseling, she told me that she did suffer from sexual assault as a teenager and continues to have nightmares and flashbacks. I'm worried about chronic depression and PTSD. Dr. Cho, what do we know about the interplay between psychosocial distress and cardiovascular disease? Yeah, so CVD morbidity and mortality increases by almost up to threefold if you have significant depression, PTSD, childhood adversities, or severe socioeconomic deprivation. Its impact is really no less important than the traditional risk factors. When you come to Cleveland Clinic Prevention Clinic, you get a depression and anxiety assessment because that's how important we think that risk factor is. And for women, we know that depression and PTSD and early life adversity and harassment and even discrimination, and I think that's really powerful, especially for underrepresented women population like African-American women and Latinas, that it really increases your risk by twofold. Women are more predisposed to depression and anxiety, and having that risk factor increases your cardiovascular risk. So it's really important to assess there are multiple tools out there from SF12 to SF36 to PHQ9. There's multiple tools out there, but it's really important to address some of those things because the neuroendocrine stress system increases things like cortisol. It you know, wreaks havoc with autonomic function. It increases your cardiometabolic risk factors, increases inflammation, endothelial dysfunction. I mean, these are all related. I mean, they're all connected. We, we never really have thought about these things as being 
together, you know, we always think about patients in silos, but really all these things happen in one patient. It's really important to treat that. Thank you so much for talking about that, Dr. Cho. And, you know, I'll say that the first time I really heard about adverse childhood experiences was from my resident, Cooper Lloyd, who really taught me a lot about approach to patients with, with a prior history of trauma. And I'll, I'll read a couple of sentences from a paper she wrote in Closler about trauma-informed care. And she said that trauma-informed care is healthcare in which we bring awareness of the prevalence of trauma and its long-term effects on physical and emotional health to every patient encounter. 59% of children in the U.S. have experienced at least one adverse childhood experience. And just like we're learning from you, Dr. Cho, she does note that these are associated with long-term health problems, including ischemic heart disease, but also substance abuse and COPD. And so I think this is just such an important thing to be aware of. And uh, it's so prevalent that after reading her article, I realized that we should explore this in more detail in all of our patients. Yeah, I agree with you. I think we always think of our patients in a moment of time when you see them in clinic, but really that's just a very skewed example. You really treat the whole patient. And, you know, we often think about like, why is she not taking her medicine or why are they not compliant or why do they continue to smoke? It's all related. And so I think it's Absolutely. really important. Absolutely. Thanks for that. So our next patient in clinic is Hercilia Tensoni. She's a 35-year-old woman with morbid obesity, hypertension, and type 2 diabetes. Her BMI is 48, and her blood pressure in clinic is 155 over 88. Her last A1C was 6.9. Her medication list, she is on lisinopril, metformin, liraglutide, and oral contraceptive. Dr. Cho, how do you approach hypertension in this patient and in general? So hypertension is very difficult to control, as many of you know, It's because it is so related to the risk factors of obesity and salt intake and being sedentary. And so hypertension really is a difficult thing to control. But one thing that's very interesting between gender is that women, when you look at them, they tend to have more hypertension that's obesity sensitive. So that means that if you are able to control their weight or even reduce their weight just a little bit, you can really have an impact on their blood pressure control. Same with salt restriction. For postmenopausal women, making that small restriction in sodium intake using things like a DASH diet, which I think is an excellent diet, really makes a dramatic impact. Now, we know that birth control pills, certain birth control pills really increase increase your blood pressure. There are people who are extremely sensitive to that. And that's something we should keep an eye on. You know, she's 40 years old. So we also want to be cognizant of the fact that she may get pregnant. And so you want to counsel her, make sure that she's on appropriate birth control if you're going to put her on an ACE inhibitor. Now, she's a perfect candidate for an ACE inhibitor, given the fact that she's hypertensive and diabetic. She's already on lisinopril, but she's not at control. Now, if you look at some of the guidelines from ESC and ADA and ACC, for diabetics, ideal blood pressure is less than 130 over 80. That's the ideal blood pressure. And so you want to try to get her there because she is only 40. And so if she continues to be hypertensive, the long-term consequences of that is so high, you want to really try to control her blood pressure. Oh, thank you, Dr. Cho. As we talked about earlier in the vignette, her blood pressure is really poorly controlled. And you had mentioned, obviously, the benefits for her to be on ACE and her specific blood pressure cutoffs. But what do we know about sex-specific blood pressure targets? And what is the role of ambulatory blood pressure measurement and guiding management for patients like this? 
Yeah, so I really like ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. I think that's really key, whether you're a man or a woman. I think the other really interesting thing is a 24-hour blood pressure monitoring. Studies have shown that women have less of a nighttime blood pressure drop, which actually increases your risk of having major adverse cardiac event. The nighttime, you should have a reduction around 10% of your blood pressure at bedtime, but women tend to not have that, which really increases the risk of adverse outcome. The other interesting thing from looking at large studies is that as you get older, you obviously have more side effects on medications. Women tend to have more side effects. They seem to have more dizziness and more sort of adverse outcomes associated with it. But there's one really important thing to remember, not for this lady, but for other patients that you are likely to see. Women with osteoporosis or concern for osteoporosis or severe osteopenia, one of the better drugs out there would be thiazide diuretics because they tend to be more favorable on bone metabolism to spare the bone loss. Unfortunately, the randomized control study while it suggests really no outcome differences between men and women, the SPRINT study, which tested this hypothesis of whether tight, aggressive blood pressure control is beneficial, only enrolled 36% women. So we really don't know whether it's really beneficial or not. Now, the study, if you look at it very closely, would suggest that there is a trend towards benefit. But because only 36% of women enrolled in that trial, we really can't make definitive conclusion. Yeah, absolutely. So back to our clinic patient, thankfully, her diabetes is well controlled with her current regimen. But I'm curious, how does the impact of diabetes differ among the sexes? What's really interesting is is that about half of the people in America with diabetes are women. And women have much higher rates of type 2 diabetes in youth, while men have higher prevalence in midlife, and, and then it evens out in older age. So what that means is that if you're a female, you've had diabetes for a longer time. And that's why probably that women tend to not benefit from estrogen and get heart disease at similar age as men. If you're a woman with type 2 diabetes, you have almost 50% excess risk of cardiovascular events compared to a diabetic man. So it is really a powerful risk factor. So there was recently a study, a meta-analysis of 49 studies, over 5 million people. This was published in BMC Medicine. And what they saw was that women with diabetes compared to men, they have increase in all-cause mortality, increase in cardiovascular disease mortality, increase in coronary heart disease mortality, and then there is a significant increase in heart failure too. The UK Biobank study confirms that heart failure incidence is greatly increased in women with diabetes, and heart failure mortality is around twofold that of diabetic men. So having diabetes is an extremely aggressive risk factor in women. Thanks, Dr. Cho. So diabetes, of course, is a very important risk factor for everybody, but disproportionately more so in women. And while in non-diabetics, women tend to develop heart disease later in life, that almost protective benefit goes away in diabetics, especially because women tend to develop it earlier in life. Yes. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So Ms. Tensoni previously declined statin therapy. She said she had a lot of myalgias when she was previously on a torvastatin, 80 milligrams daily. In general, how do we do with lipid management in women? And does she warrant statin therapy? And if so, what's your practical approach to those with statin intolerance? 
Yeah, this is a great question. So let me just start out saying that women and men benefit equally with statin therapy, whether they're primary prevention or secondary prevention. Unfortunately, women are less likely to get statins. They're less likely to stay on statins. So there's a disparity in terms of getting treated and also staying on treatment. There is some data that women may have more side effects. Unfortunately, the statin intolerance was muddied for many years because people didn't enroll patients if they had symptoms during a run-in phase of a statin trial. But everyone knows who's taking care of patients that statin myopathy or myalgia are really true events. When they do happen, they happen usually with a higher dose of statins versus lower dose of statins. They're more likely to happen in lipophilic versus hydrophilic. So lipophilic statins are atorvastatin, simvastatin, fluvastatin, and, and they, basically they go everywhere. Hydrophilic statins are more selective and they are rosuvastatin and pravastatin, and they tend to be more gentle on muscle. So hydrophilic statins are more gentle on the muscle than lipophilic statins. For women who are 40 years old, who are of childbearing age, and and they need to be on a statin therapy because they have high risk, we have a long discussions about birth control and what's going to be your birth control, because as you know, statins are teratogenic, and you have to stop statins at least, at least two months prior to thinking about getting pregnant. And we really are very strict about that. So once you have this discussion with the patient and they're willing to be on a statin, I really want to emphasize the shared decision-making because I think one of the things that's interesting to me is, is that the number of people who, like you say, hey, you had a heart attack, you we should start you on a statin. They're like, they have... I've heard of somebody, I know somebody, everybody has a horror story on statins and they don't want to start statins. But these are an amazing group of drugs and they've really shown efficacy. But one thing I've learned is, is that if you don't have a buy-in with your patient, if you don't have the same goals and agenda, then they're not going to do it. So I think that especially in young patients like this, it's really important to have shared decision-making and talk about the goals and what are we treating and what are we preventing and, you know, why are we doing this? Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Cho. That is absolutely fantastic. It sounds like we definitely could do better with lipid management for this particular patient, but sidestepping to another very incredible topic and a saga, which I think is absolutely fascinating and unlocks a lot of understanding of evidence-based medicine Where do we stand on aspirin for primary prevention in women specifically? So aspirin has really, really taken a beating over the last couple of years. As you recall, the Women's Health Initiative, which looked at aspirin every other day, 100 milligrams a day, did show benefit in women greater than the age of 65 in lowering ischemic stroke. And since then, everyone has had their own guidance or feeling or whatever about aspirin. The recent data in the era of statins, in the era of better blood pressure control, really has not shown much benefit. And I'll just quickly go through some of the trials. And one is ARRIVE, which you had to have a moderate risk, really no benefit in terms of reduction of MACE, but increase in bleeding. 
Ascend, which was diabetic primary prevention, did show decrease in MACE, but increase in bleeding. Now, that's the reason why the American Diabetic Association recommends low-dose aspirin if you have a high risk. And then Aspree, which is age greater than 70, really no uh, benefit, but increase in bleeding. And then also very interestingly, increase in mortality, most likely due to bleeding. So here's my feeling on aspirin. Of course, you need to be on aspirin if you are for secondary prevention, coronary heart disease, prior TIA, stroke, peripheral arterial disease. You should not be on aspirin if you're a healthy woman with no major cardiovascular risk factors. You should not get it for routine use after 70 unless there's, you know, extenuating circumstances. And you should not be getting it for primary prevention if you have prior bleeding or at risk for bleeding. Now, here is a maybe category. The maybe category is if your risk factors are not well controlled. So if you have poor lipid control, if you have poor blood pressure control, you should think about aspirin. If you have high CVD risk and low risk of bleeding, you should think about aspirin. If you have a very strong family history of premature ASCVD, you should think about aspirin. If your calcium score is greater than 100, I consider you as having CAD-like equivalent. Some people don't, but I think then we should think about aspirin. And obviously, if you're a current smoker, you should stop smoking right away. You should be on aspirin therapy. Thanks, Dr. Cho. That was such a good discussion. I feel like when I'm in clinic with Dr. Jaber, uh, half of what we're doing is actively taking patients off aspirin that have been on it for years in the past. I know. And you know, patients are very funny about aspirin, right? Like they're funny about aspirin. They're funny about their vitamin E and C and <laughs> D. They're like incredible. It's like a religious, it's like a religious experience for them. It's very interesting. Yeah. And, and some of them have the same response to routine stress testing. They're like, I want my routine stress testing. Great opportunity for education and counseling yes. there. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. But do, do you think that's from a historical perspective? Like, was there a point where cardiologists were also married to the aspirin and the oh, routine stress testing? Yes, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think that's where humility really comes into play. You know, I was, I was reminded about that recently. If you just look at most recent three months, our guidance on wearing masks during COVID, we went from, you don't have to wear a mask, mask is only for healthcare, to everybody should wear a mask. And that kind of fluctuation, you know, I think is very difficult for patients and populations to embrace. Same thing here. You know, everybody, aspirin, stress test. And then, you know, unfortunately, sometimes the taking away care is harder to disseminate than starting care. It was actually one of our previous conversations. It was with Dr. Jeffrey Moses, and he was talking about the evolution of transcatheter valve interventions, where I think he says something like, I always look looking at my slides, you know, from the early days, because it reminds me how confident we were about things that ended up being wrong. <laughs> <laughs> That's like my whole life. So moving on to our next clinic patient, Ms. Ora Fibrilani. She's a 66-year-old woman with paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, status post-cardioversion two weeks ago, now on warfarin. 
How did they come up with the sex-specific CHADS-VASC thresholds for starting anticoagulation? And are there differences in anticoagulation efficacy between men and women? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, this is something that I have, because of our paper, I was reminded about the female sex in AFib. And it's really a powerful reminder that you have to look at patient individually. So female sex is a risk modifier if you're greater than the age of 65 or if you have two or more sex-related risk factors. And that's why it adds a point. And women with AFib have bigger strokes a stroke with greater severity and worse long-term outcomes in terms of permanent disability compared to men with AFib who have stroke. And that's very important because when you ask a patient, hey, what are you afraid of? They'll say having stroke and cancer. And you can see that because it really does impact their quality of life. And women with AF have a greater residual stroke risk even with VKAs. And, and so these new, new DOACs or NOACs or whatever you want to call them, the great thing about them is, is that they really do lower the risk. And this residual stroke risk that was greater in women than men on warfarin therapy seems to be negated with the new NOACs. So they're really particularly a good thing for women. Great. Thanks, Dr. Cho. And I remember reading from your review article that women seem to also get a lot of benefit from left atrial occlusion therapy compared to anticoagulation as well. So that was uh, interesting to find out. Yes. I mean, you know, these new occlusion devices are, are really meant for people, obviously, with high bleeding on NOACs. I'm not sure they will ever come to a point where they will be the first line therapy. But yes, they, they do offer a benefit. Great. Thank you, Dr. Cho. Our next patient is Monita Hormone, who is a healthy 55-year-old woman presenting with hot flashes and oligomenorrhea found to be perimenopausal. She's asking about the role of hormone replacement therapy in preventing cardiovascular disease. What do we tell her? So hormone replacement therapy or postmenopausal therapy has been one of the great, great debates in medicine. And you guys are probably too young, but at one point, everyone was recommended to start hormone replacement therapy or menopausal hormone therapy when they started menopause. And, you know, it was only when Women's Health Initiative and HERS trial came on, which was in the late 90s, early 2000s, that we actually had randomized control studies to show us that really it did not. And that really made a big difference. The American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, along with ACC and AHA and ESC, do not recommend hormone replacement therapy for cardiovascular disease prevention. And for years, there's been stuff out there about timing. And if you start estrogen early, you can have a benefit in terms of cardiovascular disease reduction. And that is not true. It hasn't been consistently shown. The largest meta-analysis shows, again, no benefit, but an increased venous thromboembolism risk. And so if you're going to start hormone replacement therapy or menopausal hormone therapy, that you do it for the shortest amount of time and you understand that you're not reducing cardiovascular disease. And just to say to all the fellows out there and everybody in training, you know, we often think about like gender disparities, but 
the fact that it took so long for these trials to happen really does say something, I think, about treatment of women for cardiovascular disease. So anyways, let me just get off of my little podium right there. I think, I think Dr. Cho, that's an important point because I hadn't realized until recently that the whole concept of women's cardiovascular health was such a recent recognition with Dr. Nanette Wenger's NEGM review, I think in the 1990s was sort of considered to be earth shattering at the time, you know, which I think is, uh, is really amazing to consider. Yeah. I mean, you know, in 1964, the American Heart Association put on its first program for women. And do you know what the title of it was? It what? was Way to a Man's Heart, How to Improve Your Husband's Diet so He Can Have oh, Less Heart no. Disease. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. Oh, no. I know. It's an embarrassment. Okay, but that's, we didn't that's know. terrible. Yeah, we didn't know. So, so then you fast forward, and then you know you were asking women like, "Hey, you know, what do you think is the number one cause of death for women?" And they were saying breast cancer, gynecological cancer, truly the bikini line medicine, right. but it was heart disease, and women were showing up to emergency room late into their heart attack. I mean, things were really not good, and it was really due to people like Nanette and and the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology really sort of pushed to get the message out that we now have the awareness of women's heart disease. And, you know, the interesting thing about our own paper is that the last time anything was published on women and prevention was 2011. And if you read that paper, which is a great paper, it still doesn't mention anything about these unique female risk factors because wow. we didn't know back then. It sounds like we've got a lot of work to do. Yeah. And and that's why it's such a great thing that you guys are doing because there's no hope except future. And so I want the, the fellows that are listening to get excited and to contribute to the literature, to the research and to taking care of our patients so that we can really move this needle and lower the heart disease risk in women. We really could not agree with you more, Dr. Cho, and that's definitely uh, one of our primary objectives is not only to enhance education on women's cardiovascular disease, and we hope to continue to get experts on the subject and just really be a platform to continue this discussion. As you've mentioned already, we do have a pretty prominent following among young trainees what is your message for them as they take care of women in their clinics and on the hospital wards? I would strongly urge them to know the risk factors that's unique for women. There are lots of other unique heart disease that pertain to women, like microvessel disease, like spontaneous coronary artery dissection, fibromuscular dysplasia, diastolic heart failure, Takasubo cardiomyopathy, there are some unique things that in cardiology are female specific, but the cardiac risk factors for heart disease really is something that you can address every day to every female patient and to really be mindful of these things. I think the first line of treatment is awareness and to be aware of the unique things that are present in 50% of your patient population is really critical. 
Thank you so much. Really appreciate you coming on the show and talking about women's cardiovascular health. And for us, like Corinne mentioned, this is a really important topic overall. And we've actually began a women's cardiovascular health page. And our intention for that is for that to become a long running longitudinal series where we have leaders in the field come talk to us about unique aspects of women's cardiovascular health so that we can do our part in raising awareness and just be better about taking care of the 50% of our population. Yes, that's great. Dr. Cho, we are so proud to do this series on cardiovascular prevention in conjunction with the American Society of Preventive Cardiology. And the deeper we get into the topic, the more we realize the impact we can have via preventing disease in the first place. So we'd like to ask you, what makes your heart flutter about preventive cardiology? That's a good one. I think it's amazing that you and I and everyone that's listening on here are in a field where 90% of our disease can be prevented. It's an amazing and powerful tool. And I think that we are involved in that kind of an amazing field, I think is, is a really good thing. There are a couple of things that are really great coming down the stream in preventive cardiology, and that is every aspect of the heart, including we, we knew about CAD, we knew about, you know, PAD, now we know about heart failure, and now we're learning so much about atrial fibrillation. So every part of the heart is really uh, affected by weight and blood pressure and lipids and diabetes. And that's really exciting that bringing together the entire preventive cardiology to every aspect of cardiology. There's no subspecialty in cardiology that isn't touched by prevention. And then for me personally, the most exciting thing is LP little a. I have been interested in LP little a for many, many years. And I started collecting blood samples on LP little a when there was no treatment. And now there are four drug companies in hot development for LP little a drug. One is a phase three trial that is already launched with Novartis. There is three others. And I think that for me personally, that is a very exciting new field, new intervention in preventive cardiology. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Cho. I have to say how much of a pleasure it's been learning from you in clinic, in the ICU, in the cath lab. I still have your handmade drawings <laughs> of different cath views right on my desk so I can refer to them. And, you know, from your time with us today on this episode. So it's been an honor. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you guys for having me. And it was really, really my pleasure. And, you know, I really mean this. The The future of cardiology is not people like me, but it's really people like you. And the, the best part of my job is working with fellows. And really, I, th I am so privileged to work with some of the best fellows. And thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about our paper. Dr. Cho, can I ask one quick question? Yeah. Yeah, just an extra moment. As we talked about earlier, I just recently graduated from general cardiology, about to literally start taking STEMI call in a couple of days. Super excited about that. How do you, <laughs> yeah, I'm really, I can't, I got added to the pager today and I've literally had, I missed two coffees that I usually have and I'm fine. I'm hey, hey, excited. you know, ter ter tertiary prevention is still prevention. <laughs> well, that's kind of what I was getting at. Dr. Cho, you, you, you know, you're just such an excellent interventionist 
but yet, but not yet. But at the same time, you have one foot in the lab and you have one foot in prevention. And I, I, I really value that. And that's something that I want to make sure I also emulate. Do you have any advice for me? Yeah. So, you know, Daniel, I was an interventionist in an era prior to drug eluding stand. Now, not very prior. I graduated from interventional fellowship in 2002 and the DES came out in 2005. Many of you were what in junior high school at that time or something. Anyway, that was my high school graduation. Oh, stop five. it. <laughs> stop it. Now I just feel a white hair coming on. But one thing that totally frustrated me when I was an interventionist is people that would come in again and again. And there was like, we would put a stent in, they would go home. I feel great. They feel great but for a minute. And it really bothered me. Like it, it really bothered me fundamentally, like at, at, at a core of my being. And I realized what a bad job I was doing treating things like blood pressure and cholesterol and diabetes. Now I knew, you know, statins, 80, atorvastatin, whatever. And, and to be quite honest, I really didn't know beyond that. And I really spent a lot of time training myself learning about stuff to make that into my practice. And then I had a unique opportunity to come to the Cleveland Clinic and start a women's cardiovascular center and then take over the prevention so that it became a more comprehensive program. And one of my vision has always been to make prevention. We have around 10 doctors here in preventive cardiology at the clinic, and we see about 11 to 12,000 people a year but it includes cardiologist, endocrinologist, hypertension expert, a psychologist, psychiatrist, nutritionist, exercise physiologist. I mean, it includes a whole group of people. And that's always been my vision for prevention. And I think to start from intervention, opening up an artery, knowing that that wasn't enough, sort of led me down this rabbit hole to where I am today. Wow, That's this really is uh, really amazing. Thank you. I will take that to the bank. Live with it. And, and I think it's important to highlight really that multidisciplinary approach to care. You know, we talked about earlier with the psychosocial component about how disease doesn't just affect a certain organ system, but the entire person. But even more so, you know, having that multidisciplinary approach really allows you to serve your patients in the best possible way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, the the thing I learn every day is how little I know from my colleagues. And I have a, we just hired someone um, who joined our staff. He's an MD, PhD. He's a cardiologist and an endocrinologist, and he is heading our initiative on cardiometabolic um, disease and diabetes management. And it's so important to have different viewpoints. We have someone who trained in cardiology and did another year in hypertension. And that's an important aspect. Of course, we have other colleagues from different departments. And I think the thing I'm going to say, and this is truly one of my advice to all the fellows that are out there, is it's really important to be intellectually stimulated once you're out of fellowship, you're so stimulated now because you're within the fellowship and you don't realize how lucky and how blessed you are to be in that setting. Some of our fellows have called me and said, you know, they really miss that kind of hallway conversation, sort of intellectual stimulation. And that's really important. And that's what keeps your job fresh. And that's what 
makes you not burn out. The the one thing is, is every time I've had sort of a turning point in my career, it has been because I've been exposed to something new that I wanted to explore further. And it's always led to really, really good things. So I encourage you from, forget the whole, you know, medicine part, but just life part to always stay interested and curious. Hi, this is Amit Kara. I'm president of the American Society for Preventive Cardiology and professor of medicine, director of preventive cardiology at UT Southwestern Medical Center. I want to first thank the Cardio Nerds podcast. What an amazing job these folks do and really thankful that they've elected to do this prevention series. Prevention is so important and so fundamental to all that we do in cardiovascular medicine. And at the American Society for Preventive Cardiology, we're delighted to co-sponsor this series to really promote what they do, to share with all of you about the wonderful world of prevention and all the great experts that they're going to bring on these podcasts. We hope you get a lot out of this series. And if anybody wants to learn more about prevention, please reach out to myself or any one of these excellent speakers they have coming up. We're all pretty passionate about prevention, and we certainly want to help others learn about it too. And they're not, you're not, you're supposed to be, I'm sorry, that was Jaber. He called. No. <laughs> of course, Dr. J- oh, you know, we're actually going to be doing an episode with Dr. Jaber and Aldo. Oh my God. You know what? Tell me so I can call him during that. <laughs> <laughs>